Amen. So this semester we are talking about eschatology. Someone tell me what eschatology means. Yeah, the study of the end times. So are we in the end times? Is this the last days? The answer is yes. But also in the time that the Bible is being written, the answer is yes. We've been in the end days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 or so years. And so we're talking about eschatology all semester. Today we're just talking about a little slice of that, and that is the book of Revelation. We'll actually be in uh, the book of Revelation this week and next week, and then we will kind of consider some of the, uh, the bigger themes of Revelation in, uh, in coming up uh, weeks. So after the lesson today, let me kind of set your uh, expectations and uh, uh, in anticipation correctly. After the lesson today, will you necessarily just be an expert in the book of Revelation? Will you understand Revelation? No. Well, you better understand Revelation, hopefully so. My goal is not, uh, honestly, to give you a lot of answers today. My goal is to give you the main questions that you need to ask in order to understand Revelation, and then to give you some helpful hints to, uh, to know how do I begin to address these main questions. So I'm going to give you seven questions uh, today. If you can answer those seven questions about the book of Revelation, you will understand the book of Revelation. Revelation. So I want to start, though, with some introductory material. Uh, and so uh, the author is, uh, is John. We know that from the introduction to the book. Traditionally, that's been held to be the Apostle John. Some people think it was another John uh, in church history that was somehow connected to the Apostles. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I hold the traditional view that it's the Apostle John. The date, traditionally, it's been dated around 90 to 95 AD. So it's historically been seen as the final book. Uh, in the, uh, the New Testament canon. The title of the book, it's not Revelations, plural, so don't ever say that or else you will get made fun of, but Revelation, singular. It's actually in, uh, in Greek the word apocalypse. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ is the, uh, the opening uh, sentence, the opening phrase of the book, so it's been called the apocalypse of John. The audience to whom the book is originally written, the seven churches near the west coast of modern-day Turkey. So you'll see in the first couple of chapters uh, a number of churches that are uh, addressed. The context, so what's going on in those seven churches as kind of a, a symbol of what's going on in the, the empire as a whole. There's false teaching, there's persecution, there's moral compromise, and then there is this spiritual complacency. And so that's kind of the milieu, the, uh, the environment, the context in which John is writing this book. And, uh, and so the premise of the book is to call the people in light of all of these things, in light of the false teaching, in light of the persecution, in light of the moral compromise, in light of the spiritual complacency, to call the people to persevere and to conquer. Nikeo is actually the, the, uh, the Greek word there, to, to conquer. And so the word Nike uh, the brand name Nike is actually from that, to conquer, to overcome. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to, uh, in a typical apocalyptic fashion, I've given you these very symbolic numbers. I'm going to give you seven arguments from the book. I'm going to give you seven interpretive questions, and then I'm going to give you 12 helpful hints for reading. That's what we're going to do. Seven uh, questions, or seven arguments, seven questions, and then 12 helpful hints uh, for reading the book. Let's begin with the seven arguments of the book. This is kind of the, the themes uh, that you'll see as you, uh, as you work through the book. The first one, through his sacrificial death, Jesus Christ has conquered Satan and redeemed people from every nation to become a kingdom of priests. Second, Jesus is present among his churches through the Spirit. He knows their trials, triumphs, and failures. Third, world history, including its disasters, is under the sovereign control of God. He is presently holding back his wrath and preventing his enemies' efforts to destroy the church. Fourth, present disasters are warnings of increasing judgments to come. Fifth, believers will continue their faithful testimony even to death. They will conquer both the dragon and the beast. The martyr's victory is now hidden, but it will be obvious when Christ returns. Sixth, Satan attacks the church's perseverance and purity through persecution, deceptive teaching, and the temptations of wealth and sensual pleasure. And then seventh, at the end of the age, the church's opponents will increase their persecution. Jesus, the triumphant king, will defeat and destroy all its enemies. The old heaven and earth marked by sin and suffering will be replaced by a new heaven and earth 
and the church will be presented as a pure bride to her husband. If someone ever asks you, what's the book of Revelation about? This is it. These seven sort of themes, these seven sort of main arguments kind of form the overarching themes, the overarching sort of outline of the book of Revelation. You want to know what Revelation is about? It's about these seven things. Now, we're going to get into what are the difficulties in reading the book of Revelation, but you need to first understand kind of the main themes, the main uh, arguments that the author is making. So, the ESV Study Bible summarizes the book like this. Revelation unveils the unseen spiritual war in which the church is engaged, the cosmic conflict between God and His Christ on the one hand and Satan and his evil allies, both demonic and human, on the other. In this conflict, Jesus the Lamb has already won the decisive victory through his sacrificial death, but his church continues to be assaulted by the dragon in its death throes through persecution, false teaching, and the allure of material affluence and cultural approval. By revealing the spiritual realities lying behind the church's trials and temptations during the time between Christ's first and second comings, and by dramatically affirming the certainty of Christ's triumph in the new heaven and earth, the visions granted to John both warn the church and fortify it to endure suffering and to stay pure from the defiling enticements of the present world order. So regardless of what you think in regards to what is and is not confusing about the book of Revelation, these are the things that you need to know as far as the overarching themes of the book, the overarching uh, arguments, and then we'll get into some of the details with these seven interpretive questions. Most of the interpretive difficulties that come in regards to trying to understand what John is writing in Revelation, most of the questions that you have, most of the confusion that you have about the book of Revelation come as a result of the way that you answer these seven interpretive questions. If you can answer these seven questions, you can understand the book of Revelation. That's it. Just seven questions, you can understand the book of Revelation. The first one, I did these like uh, Jerry Seinfeld sort of, what's the deal? What's the deal with the genre? The second one, what's the deal with the timing? The third, what's the deal with the judgments? Fourth, what's the deal with symbols? Fifth, what's the deal with numbers? Sixth, what's the deal with the millennium? And seventh, what's the deal with Revelation? Again, if you can answer those seven questions, you will understand the book of Revelation. And so let's talk about those seven questions, beginning with what's the deal with genre. Someone tell me, what's the type of literature that Revelation is? <clears throat> I heard it mumbled. Yeah, apocalyptic, all right? So it's actually three different types uh, of literature. It's a combination of all three. It's prophetic, all right? Uh, and so you'll see the word prophecy throughout the book of Revelation. So it's pr- prophetic, which, by the way, prophetic doesn't just mean predicting the future. There's various aspects of prophecy. Prophecy includes both discernment of the contemporary situation as well as prediction of the future, as well as some sort of call for response, for repentance, for perseverance, whatever it might be. So that's the first type of literature. It's prophetic. It's secondly, apocalyptic. And, uh, and so uh, all apocalyptic literature is prophetic. Not all prophetic literature is apocalyptic. If you weren't here last week, you need to go back and listen to that audio because we spent an entire week talking about kind of what's the deal with apocalyptic literature. So how do we know that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic? There's various ways that you could approach it. If you were here last week, Zach gave us some helpful hints for understanding when something is apocalyptic. But you can kind of throw those out when it comes to Revelation because the beginning of the book is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So it tells you that it is apocalyptic. And then in addition to prophetic and apocalyptic, it's also epistolary. What does epistolary mean? Relating to an epistle, which is a, and a, a letter. And so it's originally written to seven distinct churches. And uh, so it's prophetic, it's apocalyptic, and it's epistolary. Why is genre so important? We spent a lot of time on this last week. I want to go over it again just really quickly. Go back and listen to that audio, though, if you weren't here because it's uh, important. Imagine that I am telling a joke. Whether it's a good joke or not, I'll let you decide. But I'm telling you a joke. And then part of my punchline, I say, so then the dog says to the cat. And imagine that you then interrupt me and you say, dogs can't talk. And you go and you set up an appointment with the elders and you say, Jeff is untrustworthy. He just told me that a dog said something to a cat. What have you just done? 
You're kind of a killjoy, right? You're not fun to be around at parties and that kind of stuff. But you've missed the genre. The genre is a joke. In the context of a joke, I can say the dog set or whatever it might be because that's the unique genre. So we used this example last week. And so if you read something that says, my head hurt or my heart hurts and I think I might die, it matters whether or not I'm writing that to my wife or if I'm writing that to my doctor, right? In one, my wife is going to be encouraged. In the other, my doctor might call an ambulance or something like that. But if you don't know the actual context, if you don't know the quote-unquote genre, then you don't know what's the appropriate response. Likewise with Revelation, if you miss the genre that Revelation is in, you will misunderstand it and thus misapply it. And so it's really, really important that we understand some of the distinctives of apocalyptic literature. Again, we spent time on this last week, but by way of review, a few things that you need to know uh, about it. So first, what does the word apocalypse mean? Well, it means an unveiling, an uncovering, a disclosure, a revelation. That's why we call it revelation. And so it's kind of the imagery of pulling back a curtain. So think Wizard of Oz and Toto goes and pulls the curtain back and you see that this great and powerful Oz is actually just this guy, right? Or Zach used this example, I thought it was pretty funny, uh, that uh, when you're watching uh, The Price is Right, there's all these revelations, there's all these apocalypses, they're always pulling back the curtain, a new car, whatever it might be, right? Those, that's what an apocalypse is, it's a pulling back of a curtain of something. So that's what the word means, an unveiling, an uncovering, a disclosure, a revelation. Second thing that we need to know is although this type of literature, this genre of literature is somewhat difficult for us, if you are uh, a resident of the first century, this would have been very, very familiar uh, to you. Not only do you see it in Old Testament literature, like Daniel and Ezekiel and in other uh, uh, books of of the Old Testament, but you also see it in extra biblical literature. Uh, both the apocryphal literature and other pseudepigraphal uh, works. And then you also see it in other cultures. So there's Babylonian apocalyptic literature and so forth. So uh, that's the second thing you know. Third, you need to know that it tends to be highly symbolic. There's always a literal point, but the language itself is not always literal. It, it oftentimes uses symbols and, uh, and figurative language and so forth. Fourth, it contains cosmic cataclysmic imagery, these images of stars falling and mountains shaking and the sun being darkened. And this imagery is kind of pointing us to uh, the reality of approaching divine judgment. The fifth thing you need to know, it always is going to contrast these two opposing forces, God and Satan, good and evil. Now, those aren't uh, equally strong forces, but there is nonetheless this opposition And so it uses this language of dualism to show this uh, unseen spiritual war. Remember, it's a unveiling. What is presently unseen, it's showing to us. It's, It's unveiling for us. So it points to this unseen spiritual war. Sixth thing in uh, Revelation in particular, you see this series of counter images. So one thing looks like fill in the blank, but actually... After the unveiling of the curtain, you'll see that it's actually something else. So a couple of examples of that. You see Rome. Rome is uh, depicted as this beautiful, stunning woman. Anyone here ever been to Rome? So even to this day, there's still some of the Forum and the Colosseum and some of these sort of things that have have survived uh, over the past 2,000 years. And it's beautiful and it's gorgeous and yet... How does Revelation uh, portray Rome as this brazen prostitute? So she appears like this beautiful, stunning woman, but it unveils her as actually being this brazen prostitute. Or Christ, he's pictured as this poor, defenseless lamb. And yet, how is he depicted? As a lion, as a conquering lion. So it gives this series of counter images. And the seventh thing that you need to know about apocalyptic uh, literature is the purpose. So what is it that's uncovered? Well, there's two things that are uncovered in apocalyptic literature in general and in Revelation in particular, and that that is there's a spatial uncovering and there's also a temporal uncovering. But what I mean by spatial is you see something that's happening in heaven, and what I mean by temporal is you see something that's happening or going to happen in the future. 
And so there's an uncovering, there's a revelation, there's an unveiling of what's happening in heaven and also what will happen in the future. And the purpose of that is to give assurance in the present so that the readers might persevere and conquer. Remember Nike, Nikeo, to overcome, to conquer. That's the purpose. So let me give you this illustration. Imagine, if you will, so we have five staff members here at Parkway. Imagine that the five of us are playing pickup basketball and we're playing all the other non-staff members. So any other member of the church, so if you're a good basketball player and you want to imagine that you're on that team, go for it, all right? And so we're playing and let's imagine we're behind and all of a sudden, uh, Carl and Zach and Tim and Jared just collide together. They all get injured, and I'm all by myself, all right? How am I feeling about my prospects of winning that game? I'm fairly arrogant, but I don't feel like I would win that game, all right? And so we're already behind. I've just lost all of my other players. But imagine that I knew somehow, I knew there was this unveiling to me that walking in the door right now, Michael Jordan in his prime, Shaquille O'Neal in his prime, LeBron James and Steph Curry, they're about to walk in and they're going to be on my team. Now, how am I feeling? I feel great, right? I don't care how good you are as members of the church. You're not beating me and those four guys. And, uh, and so that's the kind of the imagery of revelation. There's this something that is just out of sight, just out of reach, that if only you understood, it would change your current present perspective. That's what Revelation is doing uh, for us. And so for me, I'm feeling great in this moment, knowing these guys are walking in. Now, if you, uh, one of the, the members who is on the opposing team, suddenly learned that these four guys are walking in, how are you feeling? Not great, right, about your prospects. Some of you might be arrogant. You're probably not that arrogant as to think that you're going to beat those four uh, guys. That's what Revelation does. The sovereignty of God, the ultimate uh, outcome is uncovered with the effect that if you're on team Jesus, you feel great. If you're not on team Jesus, there is this strong warning for you, calling you to repentance. So that's the deal with genre. That's why it's so important that you understand the apocalyptic genre. Let's talk about timing. What's the deal with the timing? Well, there are actually five evangelical Christian Orthodox views on how to interpret the book, in particular chapters 4 through 20. Now, let's just be honest. One of them is correct, and the others are not. One of them is correct, but the others are not. But there should be a degree of hermeneutical humility when it comes to approaching these sorts of issues. These are all legitimate Christian uh, options, and, uh, and so let's talk about those five different ways that uh, theologians and scholars and so forth have interpreted the book of Revelation in regards to the timing of the events that happen in chapters 4 through 20. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are kind of an introduction and the, the, uh, the warnings and, and uh, encouragements to the seven churches. So the first view is called historicism. All right, Historicism uh, interprets the events of the book as occurring throughout the history of the Christian church from the apostles to the new heavens and the earth. In particular, historicism is going to say that the events are this chronological order of successive historical events spanning the entire era from the apostolic church to the return of Christ and beyond. All right, and so I think we have a little graphic that we can put up there. Maybe. Okay, moving on. Uh, so, for example, if you're looking at this from, if you move the, the, the cursor, the mouse to the right of the screen, and then click it, and then click that, you will uh, maybe get it. If not, it's okay. Um, so, for example, the beast in Revelation, according to a historical view, might refer to someone during, let's say, the medieval period. Could refer to the Pope or something uh, like that. That's historicism. In addition to historicism, you have what's called futurism. And uh, so uh, if we can't ever get the, the thing, if you send me an email, you want these charts, uh, I'm happy to, to email you. Or you can go to the ESV Study Bible, and uh, I got those charts straight from there. Futurism is another view. It views the events as representing events still to come in the future. All right. So if you're reading this from a futuristic sort of uh, perspective, don't think like sci-fi futurism. 
but futuristic way of reading this, then you would say everything that happens in chapters 4 through 20 hasn't actually happened yet. It's all awaiting uh, something in the future. So, for example, the beast in Revelation refers to some sort of future antichrist figure. Now, what's interesting about futurism is that there's two different uh, unique views within uh, futurism. There is what's called the classical or historical view of futurism, and there's also what's called the dispensational view of, uh, of futurism. And so, uh, who here has ever heard of dispensationalism? All right, so dispensationalism is a way of reading Scripture that was really popularized. It's probably the most popular view of eschatology today. What's interesting is that doesn't exist until the uh, late 19th century. So no one in the history of, uh, of Christian, you know, academia or scholars or whatever it might be, no one approached the book from the, the dispensational uh, perspective until the late 19th century. I originally viewed the book just as futuristic. Everything was future. Why? Because I got saved in 2001. And what was going on in evangelical culture in the early 2000s? What book series was like really popular? Left behind, right? And so I got saved, and I thought, I need to read these books. I'll know what's going to happen in eschatology. And, uh, and so I read those books. I got caught up in that sort of uh, frenzy. Now, that is, again, that is, a, uh, that is the overwhelmingly most popular uh, eschatological position uh, today. Uh, and yet that is not what the majority of church scholars have held for the majority of Christian uh, history. So I think it's a, an evangelical option, but I don't think it's the, uh, the most likely. We'll talk about dispensational and those kind of things uh, as we move on through our uh, eschatology talk over the next few weeks. Uh, the next view, preterism. Preterism. Preterism is Latin for the thing that is past. If you take a preteristic view of Revelation, then you see the events in chapters 4 through 20 as having taken place in the first century. Typically, you would view this very significant event that happened in 70 AD. Anyone know what happened in 70 AD? Yeah, the temple was destroyed in, uh, in Jerusalem. So typically a preterist would say that most of what's uh, happening there in the book of Revelation is pointing to the destruction of the temple and all of the things that are associated with that in, uh, in the first century. Now, kind of like with, uh, oh, we have it, all right? So there's a kind of a, a view of uh, the, the uh, preterist uh, uh, perspective. And so um, uh, as with futurism, there's actually two different forms of preterism. You have what's called partial preterism, which says some of the events have already happened, but not everything. And then you also have full preterism, also called hyper preterism. And that's the view that everything's already happened. Now that is not a compelling evangelical argument. Why not? Because it would say even like the return of Christ has already happened. And, uh, and so it was a spiritual return of Christ or something like that. So he's already come back. There is kind of nothing that is awaiting uh, in, uh, in the future. And so uh, partial preterism is an uh, evangelical option. Full preterism uh, is not. But preterism just basically sees the events that you see in Revelation as having taken place in the first century, typically by 70 AD. Then you have idealism, which interprets the events of the book as symbols which are always occurring throughout the history of the church. So it agrees with historicism that the events that you see in Revelation are kind of from the first century uh, all the way through the return of Christ. So even to today, you're seeing the events happen throughout history. And yet it disagrees in saying it's not this chronological series of successive events, but rather you see these same patterns happen throughout history. You see these same patterns over and over and over again. So, for example, the beast in Revelation in this view uh, doesn't refer to only one person in particular, but rather refers to the reality that there are always rulers who persecute Christ's church. There are always going to be these rulers who persecute Christ's church. And so the beast is not actual person so much as it is a personification of this pattern that you see throughout world history of people who raise themselves up against Christ and his people and persecute the church. So those are the, the kind of the four traditional views. And then you have a fifth view, which is the eclectic view. It's called eclecticism. We don't have a, a slide for that. Um, the eclectic or the mixed reading of Revelation, what it's trying to do is really, as you might imagine, it's really trying to take all of the strengths 
from each of those other positions, historicism and preterism and futurism and idealism, take all of those strengths and leave out some of the weaknesses. This is actually the view that I hold. It's more of an eclectic uh, view. And, uh, and so I think this is the most compelling view, but you're welcome to hold any of those others as long as you don't hold the like, uh, full preterism or something uh, like that. And so as you can see, this is a major interpretive issue in the book of Revelation. You take any one event in Revelation, something that happens in Revelation 15 or something that happens in Revelation 13 or whatever it might be, and depending on your view, that could be something that, refer- that occurred already in 70 AD. That could be something that occurred in 1500 AD. That could be something that hasn't yet occurred, or it could be something that is always kind of occurring symbolically in the history of the church. Again, I think each view has strengths and weaknesses, and I think the eclectic view actually allows us the most flexibility to look at each individual text and say, is this individual text futuristic or idealistic or uh, partial preter- uh, partially preteristic or something uh, like that? So my main point is not to answer the question, uh, what's the deal with the timing, but just simply to let you know these are the five interpretive options for you as you approach the book of uh, Revelation. The next question that you need to answer uh, to understand Revelation, what's the deal with the judgments? What's the deal with the judgments? What judgments do I mean? Well, in chapter 6 through 8, you see these seals. How many seals are there? Seven, all right? Not seals like uh, that bit off Buster's hand or something like that. Not an aquatic creature, all right? A seal like on an official document. You put a little seal on there. Chapter uh, 6 through 8, you have seven seals. Chapters 8 through 9, how many trumpets do you have? Seven. Chapter 16, you have bowls. How many bowls? Seven, all right? So you have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, you have seven bowls. By the way, why seals, trumpets, and bowls? Well, because all of them have eschatological significance in Old Testament prophecy. All of them in some way point, if you read the Old Testament, seals and trumpets and bowls, all of them somehow are going to symbolize God's judgment and God's wrath. Again, you cannot read the book of Revelation apart from the Old Testament. You have to have your Old Testament lenses on in order to understand the, uh, the book of Revelation. So you have this series of visions. Each one is worse than before. So in the seals, the seven seals, how much of the earth is destroyed? It's one quarter. In the trumpets, how much of it? It's one-third. And then you get to the bowls, and it's complete destruction. You have language like every living thing. So you have this series of increasing in strength uh, judgments. Now, note also the type of judgments. Waters turn to blood. You have these painful sores that break out on the enemies of uh, God's kingdom. You have the sun is darkened. You have these unclean spirits who are described as frogs. And you have hellstones. What does that remind you of? Exodus, right? The plagues, the plagues that are affecting. And uh, so the hellstones might remind you of like spring and McKinney, but everything else kind of reminds you of these plagues that you see in the book of Exodus, God's judgment on Egypt. That's one of the pictures that we're intended to get about Revelation. Revelation is about this new Exodus that we are delivered from a greater enemy, a greater form of slavery than uh, Israel was in Egypt, that we are delivered from spiritual slavery to Satan, the ultimate enemy of God's kingdom. And you're not delivered into Canaan, but something even better, the new heavens and, uh, and the new earth. So then the real question, though, when it comes to these judgments are, are these progressive and linear? Do you have one after the other? Do you have all of the seals and then all of the trumpets and then all of the bowls? Or is it something that's more uh, what's called recapitulative? Is it recapitulating? Is it repetitive? Is it taking the same thing and turning it and talking about the same thing from a different angle? Uh, Again, if you grew up with kind of a dispensational reading of Scripture, you probably approach the book of Revelation as these series of linear chronological events. That's how Left Behind uh, takes it. So you have all of the seals and then all of the trumpets, and then you have all of the bulls. But I don't think that's what's actually happening as you look at uh, the book of uh, Revelation. Again, you can hold that view, be a member here, still be a Christian, all those kinds of things. uh, But I don't think that that's actually what the book is talking about. Instead, I think you're seeing recapitulation. I think you're seeing repetition. 
For instance, let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. In, uh, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, you see the defeat of the dragon in its desire to destroy the child of the heavenly woman in verses 1 through 5, followed by her flight for safety into the wilderness in verse 6. How long is she there? For 1260 days. Now, immediately after that, in chapter 12, verses 7 through 17, again, you have a different perspective. You see the, uh, the defeat of the dragon now in its desire to accuse the believers, followed by the heavenly woman's flight for safety into the wilderness for a time, times, and half a time. By the way, if you take time and you make that a year, and then times, make that two year, and then half a time, that's half a year, you have three and a half years. How long is 1,260 days? 300 and, uh, I'm sorry, three and a half uh, years. And so you have the same sort of thing. So in, the chap- in chapter 12, he's told the event from two different perspectives immediately after each other. So earlier visions sometimes portray later events. Later visions sometimes portray earlier conditions. It's like watching a movie and there's a flashback. You see that in the book of Revelation. For example, in chapter 6, you see the shaking of the earth and the sky so that the stars are cast down to earth by a great wind. But then you get to chapter 7, which is a chapter later, and you see that there's an angel that's restraining the wind. And then you see John, and he sees the sun and the moon and the stars are still in the sky. But I thought they'd already been cast down to the sky, to the earth in chapter 6. So again, you're telling the same story from different perspectives. So I don't think that Revelation is so much this linear chronological progression. It moves back and forth throughout history. It rewinds and it fast forwards and then it presses pause like you're watching a football game or something and then there's an instant replay and it reverses the angle on you and you see the, uh, the same event from a different angle. That's what's going on here. By the way, you see that kind of thing throughout Scripture. This is not unique to the book of Revelation. Right? So in Genesis chapter 1, you see the creation of the world. In Genesis chapter 2, you see the creation of man. Those are not in contradiction, and those are not chronologically linear progression. Instead, what you're doing is you see chapter 1, you see the creation of all things, you see the creation of man. Chapter 2 is then changing the angle, and you're focusing in particular on the creation of man. Or in Joseph's dreams, you see the wheat bows down, and then the stars bow down. Those aren't two different, distinct historical events. There are two different ways of referring to the same thing. Or Pharaoh's dream. You remember he has the dream about the, the fat cows and the lean cows and the fat, uh, was it grain and then the lean grain? Um, those are, again, those are not referring to two different things. They're two different ways of referring to the same thing. So I think this is how most people read the book of Revelation as it relates to these judgments. They think of the seals and the trains, uh, the, the trumpets, that is a train. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls as kind of like trains, these little cars on a train, and you move from one to the next. You exhaust all of the seals, and then you move to the trumpets, and you exhaust the trumpets, and then you move to the bowls, and you exhaust all the bowls. I think a better imagery of that is not a train. It's actually another children's toy, which is a nesting doll. I would call it a Russian nesting doll, but anytime you're talking about Revelation, if you mention Russia, people go crazy. So I'm just going to call it nesting dolls uh, so you don't go crazy and think I'm talking about Vladimir Putin or something like that. So that's what I think these, uh, these uh, different judgments are, kind of like nesting dolls. You have in Revelation chapter uh, 8, what is the seventh seal? You open up the seventh seal and what's there? Inside the seventh seal are the trumpets. And then you open up the seventh trumpet or the seventh trumpet sounds and what do you get? the seven bowls. So they are embedded within each other, kind of like that uh, graphic over there. You have the seals, you have the trumpets, and then you have the bowls, and they're embedded. They're different ways of talking about the same sort of thing. And by the way, although these are uh, moving downward, don't think of them, uh, again, we talked about this is uh, one quarter, this is one third, this is complete destruction. Think of this as increasing in the uh, dilution, the concentration of God's judgment. And so as it gets closer to the center, it actually becomes more efficacious, more powerful, uh, and, uh, and so forth. And so uh, I don't think that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are three differing, distinct periods of judgment, but rather three distinct different ways of talking about the same judgment seen from multiple angles, seen from various perspectives. But again, 
What is important, again, you can hold the view that this is progressive and linear and still be a Christian and still be a member, all those kinds of things. But again, it's important for you to recognize how you interpret the meaning of the judgments in regards to timing and those kind of things plays a huge part in how you interpret the book. So that's what's the deal with the judgment. Next, what's the deal with symbols? Jesus is portrayed as a lamb. Churches are portrayed as lamps. Satan is portrayed as a dragon. One of the chief interpretive questions that you have to address is what do these symbols refer to? Sometimes the author makes it clear. He tells us that the lampstands are, are the lamps are churches. It's really easy for us in uh, that particular uh, context, but sometimes it's not. Oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes they'll just give us a symbol and not tell us what that means. I'm not going to go into depth on the symbols because we actually have an entire lesson next week where Zach is going to come and talk about all of the symbols, and I assume he's going to tell us every single symbol and what it means. So you will be an expert on Revelation next week. Uh, let me uh, give the little teaser for that. So that's what's the deal with symbols? You need to understand the symbolic nature of Revelation in order to understand the book. Next, what's the deal with numbers? What's the deal with numbers? Now, not every number in Scripture has some hidden meaning, all right? We don't want to be like those people who just simply find some sort of significance. They're having to pick and choose, but they find something about every single number. Sometimes it's just simply giving us a number, but oftentimes there is theological significance to a number. For instance, it would be really silly for you to not see an illusion when Jesus is tempted in the desert for 40 days. It would be really silly for you to think that has nothing to do with Israel being tempted and tried in the wilderness for 40 years. Or when Jesus appoints 12 apostles or 12 disciples, it would be really silly for you to discount the fact that Israel had 12 Tribes. And so oftentimes it's really easy for us to see that. Well, within Revelation in particular, numbers are highly symbolic. For example, seven, you see, is a number of completion. There's seven churches, there's seven spirits, there's seven golden lampstands, there's seven stars, seven seals, seven horns and eyes, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven signs, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven golden bowls, seven, uh, a city set on seven mountains or hills. By the way, Rome is also set on uh, hills, so there's symbolism there. Seven kings. Also, there's more subtle uses of seven. How many times does uh, the book say, blessed is the one who fill in the blank? Seven times. So there's this, uh, this uh, symbolism of seven as being a number of completion. You have the number four as well which tends to symbolize something being universal or global or worldwide as we think of the four cardinal directions. So you see four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. And again, you see some subtle things as well where you have uh, John describing when all of the multitude, the myriad of people are gathered together in worship. He describes them using four different adjectives or, or different descriptions. He says peoples and tribes and tongues and languages, or, or people, tribes, nations, and languages. In other words, the whole world. So you see this subtle sort of use of four. You have four living creatures, four horsemen of the apocalypse. I think Zach's going to talk about that next week. You have 12 is a highly symbolic number. 24 thrones, 24 elders, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 foundations, 12 names, the tree with 12 kinds of fruit. How does it help to know that, that the numbers are symbolic? Well, it helps us to know what's the deal with the mark of the beast. What's the mark of the beast? What number? 666, or according to some uh, variant manuscripts, 616. Revelation 13, 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. So understanding the symbolism of numbers helps you understand the symbolism here. I think Zach's going to talk about that next week. But what does that mean? Is that uh, gematria, which is uh, this, uh, this ancient practice where numbers represent letters, or is a reference to the sixth seal and the sixth judgment and the sixth bowl, which depicts God's judgment on the followers of the beast, as God might be kind of seen as a trinity of sevens, seven, seven, seven. So the beast is a trinity of sixes. Again, Zach's going to talk about that next week. But understanding the symbolism of numbers helps you to answer the question, what's the deal with the mark of the beast? What's the deal with 1,260 days? You see that in Revelation 11 and Revelation uh, 12. Again, how many years is 1,260 days? 
Three and a half years. Anybody know how many months that is? Quick math majors. 42 months. There are times where you will see 42 months. There are times you'll see 1,260 days. Those are referring to the same sort of period. So does that refer to three and a half years of future tribulation? Again, the futurist sort of view of that. Or is it the past, like maybe a historic or preterist view of this? Maybe the three and a half years that, uh, uh, from when Nero sent troops to the burning of the temple in, uh, in 70 AD? Or is it the three and a half year period that Nero persecuted the church? Or is it not something that's in the future or something that's in the past, but is this symbolic? Similar to how in Elijah's ministry that there was drought upon the earth for three and a half years, or Israel was in the wilderness for actually 42 years, the 40 years that they were judged and the two years prior to that where they were making their way uh, to the promised land. Uh, In other words, if you're taking the symbolic view that John and Daniel, because he also mentions the same period, are not attempting to tell us how long this particular enemy of the kingdom will hold sway, as if by 1260 days they're uh, specifying a period of time that is chronologically precise. It's not the length, but the kind of time that is meant. In other words, three and a half years and 42 months and 1260 days are not just description of the chronological quantity of the period, but rather of its spiritual and theological quality. All right, so that's the 1260 days. It could be a literal event referring to the past, referring to the future, or it could be a symbolic sort of thing. But unless you understand how numbers function in the book of Revelation, you won't be able to make sense of those numbers. Next one, what's the deal with the 144,000 that are sealed? So how does it help us to know what's the deal with numbers? Well, it helps us understand what's going on with this 144,000 who are sealed, which, by the way, is 12, which is a symbolic number, times 12, which is a symbolic number, times 1,000. Speaking of 1,000, what's the deal with millennium? Understanding the significance and symbolism of numbers helps you understand what's going on with the Millennium from Revelation chapter 20. I put the passage there, verses 1 through 6, but for the sake of time, I won't read that entire section. But this is the reference to the millennium. We have three weeks on this where we're going to talk about the difference between a premillennial view, a postmillennial view, and an amillennial view. If you don't understand those terms at all, don't worry about it right now. Make sure you come back. We're going to talk about each of those. We'll spend a week on Uh, each of those uh, in the coming up weeks. But again, this is one of the major interpretive questions of the book. What's the deal with the millennium, this thousand-year period of time where Satan is bound and, uh, and Christ is ruling? And then lastly, just kind of a summary, what's the deal with Revelation? And so I've nested in there another symbolic number, three, three themes that you need to know about Revelation. Again, kind of taking us back to where we started What's the point of the book? What's the overarching theme of the book? We've talked about a lot of controversial things that you might land somewhere different from uh, the person sitting next to you. You might land differently from where I land and Zach lands and uh, other elders land. We land in different places uh, just as elders. But these are the things that you should not disagree with us on. Three themes. Number one, Revelation is about the kingdom of God. Revelation 11 to 5. Then the seventh angel blew this trumpet And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So in essence, Revelation is this fulfillment of the longing of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Revelation is about, this contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, and not merely a contrast, but how the kingdom of God will ultimately conquer the kingdom of the world. Revelation is about the kingdom of God. It's also about the holiness of God. That's one of the big themes that you have to pick up. Revelation 4, 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. By the way, what does that remind you of from the Old Testament? Anybody know? Isaiah chapter... 
Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lofty and lifted up, and uh, you see the smoke filling his temple, this apocalyptic vision, this unveiling of what's happening in heaven, and the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And so Revelation is about the holiness of God, and it's expressed in two different ways in the book of Revelation. You have these various scenes in heaven where you kind of are unveiled, you get to see, you, you, you see this revelation of uh, angels crying out and thrones and smoke and glory and all of these sorts of things. But then you also see the manifestation of what happens when God's holiness is revealed on earth in judgment and earthquakes and thunder and lightning and so forth. When God's holiness hits the earth, this sinful mass of humanity, the result is judgment. So Revelation is about the kingdom of God, it's about the holiness of God, and it's about the lordship of Jesus. Revelation 19.10, that I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The whole point of the book of Revelation is uh, the conquering of, uh, of these, uh, this, all of these other kingdoms by the one true king that is Jesus. The book of Revelation is answering this question, who is Lord? Rome makes a pretty compelling case. Caesar makes a pretty compelling case in the first century. It's big, it's strong, it controls most of the world, but Revelation is about these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, but only one will ultimately conquer and overcome, and that is the conquering king, Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, the majestic lion, the conquering warrior, the alpha and omega. So those are the seven interpretive questions. If you can answer those seven questions, and again, I didn't give you a whole lot of answers, but if you can answer those seven questions, you will understand the book of Revelation. Let me give you 12 tips, helpful hints on reading the book of Revelation. Number one, you have to read it in its correct genre. Again, some of these are going to be repeats of what we already talked about. Revelation is not only a prophecy, but also a letter and an apocalyptic writing. An apocalyptic literature looks forward to a day when God will judge the wicked and vindicate his people. Number two, you have to make sure your interpretation would work for Jewish Christians living under Roman domination 2,000 years ago. When we take the imagery and make it into something that's modern, when we take the locusts and we turn them into Apache helicopters, or we take the red dragon and we say, well, China is red or Russia is red, and we turn it into that, we've actually kind of distorted, we've made it where it would be impossible for a first century audience to understand it because China doesn't exist as a communist nation at that point, and Apache helicopters don't exist at that point. Richard Bauckham, who wrote a really good uh, introduction to the book, said this, prophecy can only depict the future in terms which make sense to its present. It clothes the purpose of God in the hopes and fears of its contemporaries. So make sure your interpretation would work for Jewish Christians living under Roman domination. Three, not everything in Revelation is in the future. It was written to churches in the past. There are elements of Revelation that have already occurred in the past. Number four, not everything in Revelation happened in the past. We're still waiting on the second coming of Christ as well as the end of all things. Number five, not everything is merely symbolic. There are actual events that occur in history within this book. Number six, allow Revelation to interpret itself. For instance, instead of guessing what the lampstands are, allow John to tell you. Read Revelation chapter one, and he tells us what the lampstands are. Number seven, do not read this as if it's some sort of magic code. The genre of Revelation is highly symbolic, and it contains a lot of imagery, but that doesn't make the book less literal. It merely means that we have to use caution in interpreting its symbols. Figurative language still has a literal point, so don't read it as if it's a code. If you want to understand the symbolism, and again, we're going to have an entire lesson on the symbolism of Revelation next week. If you want to understand the symbolism, the two things that you can do that are most helpful is just understand the nature of apocalyptic literature, understand that genre, and understand the Old Testament. If you understand apocalyptic literature and you understand the Old Testament, 90% of Revelation will make sense to you. Uh, so don't read it, though, as if it's some sort of secret code. Number eight, interpret the symbols in Revelation in light of the Old Testament, especially Ezekiel and Daniel. 
There are other books that are referenced. You see Exodus, that imagery of the, the plagues and that kind of stuff. But Ezekiel and Daniel in particular are probably the most uh, helpful. So instead of opening your newspaper to find out who you think the four horsemen of the apocalypse are, open to Zechariah chapter 6 where he talks about four horsemen. Instead of guessing who the beast is, look at what Daniel 7 says about a beast who's going to come from the sea. Number nine, Revelation uses figurative language to describe literal events. We've already talked about that. Number 10, use good resources. Again, the Left Behind series may be entertaining. The books are somewhat entertaining. The movies are iffy. But it presents an interpretation of the book of Revelation that no one in all of church history held for, uh, until the late 1800s. Likewise, Google is not a good search device for you when it comes to answers. And so if you Google search, I did this. I Google searched most of these questions. I wanted to see what does Google come up with? I know Google is not actually a thing. It's an algorithm, but you get my point. And, uh, and so I Google searched all of these sort of things. Now I've said Google way too many times. Uh, I searched all of these sort of things, and the overwhelming majority of them are just trash. They're, even if you didn't agree with my perspective on this, you would still say, I think that's trash. And, uh, and so use scholarly commentaries. Use good resources. If you want help, if you want to study Revelation, you want to know what are some good resources, send us an email. We'd be happy to give you a list uh, of good resources. Maybe Zach will even mention some in the uh, Q&A or something like that. Uh, Number 11, try not to come to the book with preconceived notions. For example, how many of you think that the word Antichrist is in the book of Revelation? Well, it's not. The the, the word Antichrist actually only appears, we're going to spend an entire week on Antichrist as well, it only appears in uh, John's writings, uh, the, the epistles of John. So we have to guard against trying to fulfill an agenda or to confirm suspicions that you already have about Russia or China or Iraq or whatever it might be so that we may interpret it correctly. And then lastly, again, just want to end with this, the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. The point of Revelation is to encourage believers under the domination of Rome as a symbol of any oppression of God's people. So the, under the domination of the worldly powers, whatever time we find ourselves in, to persevere and stay faithful to King Jesus because although they are suffering now and future Christians will suffer as well as, as uh, we see I think we mentioned this last week, that there's been more martyrs in the past century than all other centuries uh, combined, that although Christians suffer now, Jesus will come back to judge his enemies and to rescue his followers. That's the point of the book of Revelation. Now, I'm sure you have tons of questions. Hopefully, some people texted those in, so Zach's going to come up, and we'll do a little bit of Q&A. Hey, everybody. Uh, One quick thing before we get into questions. I would highly encourage you to read the book of Revelation before next week. So that way when we say something like, what happens next? Everybody's like, I know what happens next. Now you think, Zach, I can't read the whole book of Revelation. What is that, like 10 pages? Yeah, that's all it is. 10 pages front and back. Uh, It doesn't take you very long to read. If you drive an hour to work in one day, drive an hour to work and an hour back, you can listen to the entire book of Revelation in one day. Okay, so it's very doable. I would highly encourage you to do that uh, so that, uh, that you're able to glean as much as you can from these, uh, these lectures in Revelation. Uh, but let's get into some, some questions and comments and these kind of things. Again, if we don't get to your question or can't get to your question, we love you. We're not trying to avoid it. Some questions we get later than others, so we don't have time to think about it. Uh, some questions are, um, you know, might take us off in kind of a rabbit trail. Uh, Some questions are really good. We just don't have time to get to. So uh, please, again, uh, if you need answers to your questions, send us an email. Uh, If you're serving with the kids, go. But if you're picking up kids in elementary school, don't go. I get that right, Carl? Okay, that's close enough. Don't pick up your kids till they're actually done at 1015 if they're in elementary. But if you're serving, get out of here, you you crazy cats. Get out of there and go help, help serve. Okay, a few questions. Number one. Are there any good books or resources that you can re- uh, recommend to help decode the book of Revelation? Let me give you one book recommend- recommendation and also two, I'll mention two of what I think to be the best commentaries on it. 
if you want to read one small book on Revelation, which will be the most helpful book you will ever read on it, wow, that's a strong claim, uh, I would highly recommend to you The Theology of the Book of Revelation by Richard Bauckham. Okay, Richard Bauckham was a New Testament scholar at St. Andrews before retiring. The Theology of the Book of Revelation by Richard Bauckham. Uh, he has a bigger book, if you want to do more reading, called The Climax of Prophecy, but uh, this is a condensed version. It's only about 110 pages, so as far as books go, it's small, but it will kick your bottom. Uh, it's published by Cambridge Press. He's a, he's a legit scholar, and, uh, but it'll be very, very helpful for understanding the book of Revelation. The best two commentaries I know, there's about five or six good Revelation commentaries. I'll give you the top two. Both of these are going to be a bit academic, though. Again, I'm, I prefer to give you the best resources, and as you read them, if you need help, please let us know. Don't just try to read a commentary, by the way. That's tremendously boring. You use commentaries. You read books. But the best two, the, the, the gold standard, is a three-volume set by David Aune, A-U-N-E. He is a uh, New Testament and apocalyptic professor at uh, Notre Dame. And then the second best one, I think, is G.K. Beals. Uh, He's a professor at Westminster Seminary, uh, and it is put in the New International Greek Testament Commentary Series. So Beal and Aune are the two that I would most recommend. They're going to be academic, but there you go. Any additional resources that you want to mention? That's great. Uh, any smaller, more popular level, like uh, ESV study Bible stuff or... Yeah, I mean, if you... So, just in general, if you don't have the ESV study Bible, I would highly recommend that you get it. Um, and so, it has a great introduction to uh, the book, and then it has footnotes for just about every passage that's at least going to give you the interpretive options. And then, again, it gives you all the charts and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so, if that's, like, on your wish list and you don't have money for it or something like that, let us know. We'll figure out benevolence or something like that. But uh, ESV Study Bible, I would wish that every single member of our church had a copy of that. Sell your kidney and buy one if you need to. I promise, I promise it is more valuable than your kidney. Uh, D.A. Carson has a uh, lecture series that's free online where he interprets the entire book of Revelation. It's a multi-part series. The recording audio quality is not great, but the content's great. I think they have it at the Gospel Coalition website. Okay, uh, next question. How does Matthew 24, when Jesus says these things shall happen during this generation, relate to the timing views of Revelation? So, In Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about all this kind of chaotic language, right? So these people are going to be killed, and you're going to flee to the mountains, and the stars are going to fall, and he's using all this imagery. And then he says these things are going to happen in this generation. The short and easy answer to that is those things did happen in that generation in 70 AD. Jesus, in, uh, you know, when he's talking about the destruction of the temple, is not doing the exact same thing that the book of Revelation is doing. Okay? Jesus is saying the temple will be destroyed. Hear me, O Jews. The stones will be torn brick from brick. You will have to flee. You will have to run to the mountains. Had God not shortened the days, all the people would be killed. And then he says this is going to happen in, in a generation. And within that same generation, it happens. The Romans come, completely destroy the, uh, the temple. They destroy Jerusalem. They crucify so many Jews per day that eventually they have to stop because they run out of wood. There's no more wood to crucify people. So it is a bad deal that's going on. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. But I do think the destruction of Jerusalem is meant to be a foretaste of final destruction. It's meant to be a little, a little teaser, a little appetizer before the full wrath of God's meal. And so I do think you read it that way. But I think that's the easy answer to the question is he is talking about something that literally happens in uh, that generation. But uh, yeah, no, I would just add that, uh, again, if you approach it literally, and Jesus says the stars fall and all that kind of stuff, then you have to have these cataclysms. I mean, you have to basically, the destruction of the universe uh, in, uh, in the lifetime of the generation that Jesus is talking to. And so instead, if you recognize that is apocalyptic uh, imagery that's very common that you see throughout apocalyptic literature, the sun being darkened, the stars falling, it's a sign of, uh, of judgment. That's just the way that that language uh, functions. Then you can see that uh, there is this great... From a Jew's perspective in the first century, this is cataclysmic. This is cosmic proportions. Everyone around you is being killed, is being slaughtered. There is this ultimate judgment. Your entire hope, everything that you have based your life on is the temple, and that is destroyed. Your entire existence as a Jew is wrapped up in the sacrificial system. It's wrapped up in the Mosaic law. It's wrapped up in all of these kinds of things. Your entire identity is destroyed when the temple is destroyed. And so it's not, Jesus is not being hyperbolic 
whenever he talks about in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, he's not using hyperbole. This is a very cataclysmic sort of event that, that occurs there. But, but like Zach was saying, I think that is a foreshadow of something that you are seeing throughout history and then something that is uh, going to be this greater judgment uh, at some point in the future. Okay, two more questions quickly, just because they're, they're good questions, but then we'll be out of time. Any symbolic interpretation of the dimensions of the New Jerusalem? Okay, so in the book of Revelation, an angel comes and he starts measuring the New Jerusalem. Okay, now there's a really funny comment in there where it talks about cubits and it says that a human measurement is the same as an angel measurement. Just good to know. You know, I'm glad to know that we use the same rulers with angels and these kind of things. Uh, but what he does is he measures this uh, New Jerusalem and uh, it's 1,200 or it's 12,000 stadia. Uh, you know, thick and wide and long. So it looks like a giant cube. It is a giant cube. Now, why is that mentioned that way? It's not because we're going to live in a giant Lego, okay? It's not because God loves Rubik's cubes and so he's designed the New Jerusalem or something on that. There's one other place that I know of in the entire Bible where cube dimensions are given. Do you know where it is? It's the Holy of Holies. When you look at the different dimensions given of the temple, it's the Holy of Holies, which is a perfect cube. So I think what John is saying is that the whole world has become the Holy of Holies. God, again, dwells with mankind so closely, whereas the high priest couldn't even go into the Holy of Holies except one time a year. You now get to live in the Holy of Holies. That's the idea. So it's not meant to be taken as this literal golden cube, and you're like, but I can't see over the wall. That's not the idea. The idea is that uh, God, again, dwells with mankind. So anything you want to add to, uh, to that? Uh, no, just that the symbolism of the numbers also helps you there uh, as well. So the, the 12,000 or whatever, again, you have 12 times 1,000. Both of those numbers are highly symbolic. But I think the, the temple imagery is really important to notice. What's happening in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the garden. He, it's the place where he dwells with man. He says, go and make the rest of the earth like this. And, uh, and so Revelation is the fulfillment of that, except you've moved from a garden now to a city, and that city encompasses the entire earth. Where will God dwell with man? Not in this isolated little thing within an isolated little country in the Middle East, but rather on the entire new heavens, new earth with his people. Wherever God's people are, God is, is kind of the imagery uh, there. So I agree. If you're an electrician, uh, talk to Tim after this thing. He's flipping the switch and it's not working, but I thought, yeah. So electricians, please, we don't want to burn this place down. Take a look. Last, last question. On the last page, point two. Does this mean that God was limited in what he could show them if they wouldn't understand it? So point two on the last page is any interpretation that wouldn't have made sense to the original audience is incorrect. Why isn't a helicopter, and as John describes it with words they would understand back then, and we would understand after the helicopter was invented, okay? So this question is basically saying this. Uh, why are we saying that the interpretation has to make sense to the original audience. Why can't the locusts, which buzz and shoot fire out of their mouth and these kind of things, why can't that be John looking ahead in the future and seeing us going to war with Iraq and using Apache helicopters? Those sound like locusts. Missiles, those kind of look like fire, whatever it might be. Uh, a few things to this. One, we're not saying God couldn't have done that. We're saying the chance that God did that is ridiculously small. What is more likely that that imagery is supposed to be the idea of locust from Revelation and God's judgment? I'm sorry, from uh, Exodus and God's judgment against the Egyptians. Is that more likely to a Jewish mind or just something that we would understand? Let me say it another way. If you're wanting to say that Revelation is only something that could make sense in our day, the four horsemen are M1 Abram tanks or something like this, you have to say that God has left his people for 2,000 years without something that would have any direct relevance to them. Okay? I'm not willing to say that. I think it's much more likely that you interpret those symbols in light of the first century, so it would have made sense to them. And yes, maybe can you stretch that out into the future for other things? Sure. But at the end of the day, we have to go with what interpretation is most likely. It's way more likely to me that God is using imagery that the original audience would have understood and that every other period in church history would have understood. No matter what period of church history I live in, if I realize that uh, the locusts are just God's judgment, I don't have to fit into what exactly that judgment is, what exactly new nation or military vehicle or something like that has come up. I think that is, uh, is more likely. But other thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, my only other thought is, uh, so you know, if that's the way that you approach it, just want to say you know, there are things that we're going to say as we walk through eschatology that are probably going to be offensive. They're going to be difficult, and so we want to say, we love you, 
And we're, we're more than willing to chat with you about this. Uh, and so there are certain things that you don't have a right as a member of Christ's body to hold a different opinion on. There are certain things as a member of this church you don't have a right. You can't suddenly decide, I don't hold the Trinity. I don't think Jesus was actually resurrected, whatever it might be. This is not one of those things. So in this room, we can have dozens of different eschatological opinions, and that's totally fine. Uh, there's a, a lot of room, a lot of grace for those kinds of things. We're here to help uh, on any of those kinds of things. And so please don't get offended if we say something and you feel like this is like my thing is eschatology and I love it left behind and like Tim LaHaye is my best friend or something like that. Uh, then uh, just hear us say we're, we're kind of making jokes just because that's our love language, but we love you. And, uh, and so we're happy to, to, to have further conversations. Amen. All right, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll head on to service. Uh, you want to pray? Sure. Okay. Father, thank you for your word, and just confess, um, when, when Peter is, uh, is writing in his epistle, and he says that some of the things that Paul writes are difficult, uh, I say the same thing when it comes to John's writings. And so uh, there's certain things that we will see in 1 John as we go forth from here to the sermon. There's certain things certainly that we see in the book of Revelation that is difficult to us. And so I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would give us greater insight into your will, greater insight into the book of Revelation, uh, that you might be glorified, that we might be encouraged, that we might repent where we are living in sin, that we might be comforted and encouraged where we're going through suffering and trials and tribulations uh, and these sorts of things. And, uh, and so I pray that you would just uh, help us. I pray that there would be this hermeneutical humility amongst us and, uh, and love, that no one would be offended, that no one would be uh, annoyed or frustrated or whatever it might be if uh, something's taught that's not quite where they land, that there might be just this uh, charity that we exercise among each other. And I pray that you'd help us as we go forth from here and open up your word in First John and, uh, uh, and see what your spirit uh, has revealed. And, uh, and pray that we would be edified and encouraged because you're a good father who gives good gifts. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen.